Teaching for this morning comes from Romans 1, 18 through 32. This is God's word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, does anybody want to come up here and preach this one for me? <laughs> um, I'm so glad you laughed. Um, so, here's what we're doing. We're, we're in the midst of uh, a, a sermon, a two-part, two-book series, sermon series. We're, we're working through the book of Genesis and the book of Romans. And... Um, uh, I'm getting my stopwatch going for your sake. Um, and we've already looked at Genesis 1 through 11. And that's at the end of chapter 11 in Genesis, there's a big break uh, before chapter 12 in the story of Abraham. So we've switched into Romans. And we're going to look at the first three chapters of Romans uh, over the next several weeks. And uh, I'd like to keep telling you, the main reason I wanted to do that was both of these books taken together... Uh, really do give you a really wonderful picture of the whole story of the Bible and what it means. So you get the story, but you also get God's interpretation of that story. So Romans, Paul's uh, most perhaps famous letter. It's the longest. I th- yeah, I think it's longer than, than 1 Corinthians. Um, it was written in A.D. 57, right in the middle of, of, of the, the letters that he wrote, and it was written to the church in Rome that had already come into existence. Uh, but he had never visited, and he didn't know these Christians, but he was writing to them this letter. And we, we noticed last week that the theme of this letter is the good news, God's good news for the whole world. And I really want to remind you of that as we look at this passage this morning. Because... In order to truly grasp this good news that is for the whole world, we have got to hear and accept the bad news. 
If we don't accept the bad news, then the good news is, is really powerless. It'll just wash right over you and, it, and it, won't, it won't seem that significant or that beautiful or that uh, important for you. And so when we come to chapter 1, verses 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul has given us the bad news. He's given us the bad news in great detail. And when we come to this passage, we're going to see that human unrighteousness is contrasted with God's righteousness that we learned about last week. The righteousness of God that has been revealed in the gospel. And in this passage, not only do we get a a picture of human unrighteousness, we also come face to face with the uncomfortable truth of God's wrath. And perhaps you may remember, if you weren't here, that's totally fine. A few weeks ago when we looked at Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel, one of the things we noticed about that, that story in Genesis is that it was intended to give a picture of the entire human race and all of humanity's attitude towards God. And if you remember, that story is the Tower of Babel, and it's a story about a building project. It's humanity's building project to make a name for ourselves. And what we noticed was that that story really um, gives a beautiful, not beautiful, tragic picture of the human heart. That what sin really is, is it's a building project against God, of building our own kingdom rather than seeking his kingdom. And the question that I want us to, to ask this morning is, why do we do that? Why do we embark on that building project to make a name for ourselves? And I hope that for us that, that what we'll see is that Romans 1, 18 to 32, answers that why question. And I want you to see here that in, in these verses, essentially what Paul is doing is he is giving us a diagnosis of the human condition. It's similar to Genesis 11 and Tower of Babel, but it goes deeper. And there is a key word in this passage. So if you have a Bible uh, with you or you have your worship folder, uh, pull it out. I want you to look at this. And if you're a note taker, you might want to underline uh, this word. It's, it's crucial to understanding how this passage fits together. And the key to Paul's diagnosis is in this one word, exchanged. Look in verse 23. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and, the, and, and birds and animals and creeping things. And then look down verse 25. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. And then keep going down, verse 26, about halfway through. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And I think we could even see in verse 27 there, likewise, is mirroring that same concept of exchanged in verse 23, 25, and 26. And therefore, what I want to do is use this idea, this, this word exchange, to frame our study of this passage. I just got two points this morning. The human exchange and the divine exchange. The human exchange and the divine exchange. And uh, so let's first look at the human exchange. What, what is it? Look in verse 23 again in verse 25. Verse 25, 
uh, epitomizes this when it says that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Now, right at the heart of this, in verse 23, says the same thing, just in different words, when it says they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, that the human exchange at its very heart is about worship. It's about what you worship. And there's a subtle implication to this, that this is not something that just religious people do. Paul here is describing the, the entire human race throughout history, that To be a human is to be a worshiper. Or another way to think about this. You are going to love and serve something. I just, Bob Dylan just came to mind. You got to serve somebody. That's what Paul is saying here. But notice what we see here is that this exchange is really humanity's bid their desire to flourish apart from God. It's to turn our backs on him. It's instead to live according to lies and untruths, deception, uh, confusion, distortion, uh, disordered loves, that that's what we would rather do than to listen to God and to what is true about him and who he is and what he has made and what he has done. And this is not an innocent problem. It's not like we stumbled into this by accident. Notice what we see here in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That this exchange is an active suppression of denying, of ignoring the truth. And maybe this is obvious to you, but just to make it clear, to suppress the truth implies you must already know it. Which is exactly what we see here. Look in verse uh, 21. They knew God. They already knew him. Now, what what are we to make of this? We are, the human race here is described as suppressing the truth about God. And, therefore, that's possible because they, they already knew God, but refused to honor him. Now, what's the implication? Everyone knows God. No matter who you are, where you're from. Everyone knows God. Now, how can we say that? Look in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. How did he show it? His invisible attributes, his character, like his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. And then there's this remarkable statement, so they are without excuse. Now, I suspect suspect there's a number of questions that that come in in hearing that. So feel free to come ask them uh, uh, later. But what I want you to get, get at this point is that the human exchange 
that we're looking at here is a suppression of what we already know that God has made abundantly clear to us. And therefore, everyone, without distinction, is without excuse. We are culpable just by being alive because God has made it clear what it means to know him, to honor him, to love him, to serve him, and what he has made. Now, here is one of the points I want you to grasp at this point in our study of this. The heart of Paul's diagnosis of the human condition goes to right to what we love, what we worship. It is the willful refusal to honor God and find our deepest delight in him. That's really important because of what we're about to look at next. The fundamental center and heart of human unrighteousness is not outward behavior. It is the orientation of your heart away from God, suppressing what is true about him, and opting for a lie. Now, how does God respond to this? Look in verse 24. That verse begins with the word, therefore. It's very important. It's telling us, okay, how does God respond to this diagnosis of the human condition? And he says, this is the description here, from now to the end of this passage. This is Paul's description of what begins the passage, the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? Here it is. Verse 24, God gave them up. Verse 26, again, God gave them up. Again, verse 28, God gave them up. Before we look at the details of this, what I want you to hear is that the wrath of God, according to Paul, according to the Bible, is not some future thing where God might get you in the end. The wrath of God is God giving humanity over to what we most want, to what we most desire. That's the opposite of him. And allowing those desires and those longings and those intentions to go on forever unchecked, no matter how destructive they are, no matter how much you suffer from them, no matter how much other people suffer from them, God's wrath is a giving over to what you most want and doing nothing about it. And that's just. Because he has made it clear and we are all without excuse. God gave them up. Now, think a bit about it like this. It's, it's like having, um, not that I've ever done this, it's like having a little child who thinks the more candy you give them, the better off they're going to be. And despite what I tell them, which is the truth, that they will get sick, they would prefer to live by a lie that says, just give me the candy. Get more candy, life couldn't get any better, the more candy you get. Okay. I'm not going to convince you. I will let you do that. I will let you experience what happens when I give you over to what you most want 
despite the truth I am telling you. That's what the wrath of God is. That's an illustration of what Paul is trying to convey to us here. And what I want you to notice, again, it's not that it's in the future only. Here, God's wrath, his giving over, is described as a present reality, which is very important as we, as we look at this. And I know that's not normally how I think we tend to think of this. But these verses, like I said, uh, they describe God's giving up activity. In verse 24, let's notice the first thing. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts, the desires of their hearts, to impurity, to the desiring of their bodies among themselves. In other words, here Paul is describing sexual sin in general. Sexual sin in general. And then he builds on this in verses 26 to 27, where he says, For this reason, God gave them up to to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Now, Paul doesn't use the term explicitly homosexuality here, but that's what he's describing. And in fact, this is one of the six passages. There's only six One of the six passages in all of scripture that specifically talk about homosexuality or same-sex activity between women and women and men and men. And interestingly, this is the only passage that describes women in a same-sex activity way. Now, why does Paul do that? Why does Paul bring homosexuality, homosexual acts into his argument here. Here, Here's why he does this. It is a vivid illustration of an inward spiritual reality. Remember the word exchanged. It begins with exchanging the truth about God for a lie. And for Paul, and as we'll see in a moment, the most vivid way to describe or illustrate that inward problem of the heart is to look at the sexual activity of human beings that gives expression to this turning away from God to turning to do what we want to do. Now, notice how this this happens. First of all, like I said, that language of exchanged, the truth about God for a lie, and then it picks up again in verse 26. And 27, with that word, likewise. There's a progression of thought here. Paul's trying to show us something. But notice what else he does. When he says, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And likewise, the men gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. It's really important to understand. Paul is helping us to to understand what this, ex- this human exchange really is when he talks about and uses the word nature or natural. What does he mean by that? What, here's what he means. He does not mean by nature or natural, he does not mean empirical observation. 
just what you and I see horizontally when we look out at the world, and nor does he mean what seems natural to me. That I am the one who gets to determine what is natural or unnatural for me. Now, I don't have time to go into a lot of this, but this is a really important biblical point in our current cultural moment. And I just want you to know up front, I, I, I wrestled all week long how much to address the question of uh, homosexuality and um, same-sex attraction and sexual orientation. And I really want to just make it simple by saying what Paul means by natural or nature here is not left for you and me to decide. That's not what he means. Now, I realize that flies in the face of just about everything that we hear today about human sexuality. That sexual orientation very much is determined by what is natural to you, what your inclination is. But what I really want us to to notice here, when Paul says nature or natural, what he has in mind is the created order. What he has in mind here is God's original design as given in Genesis 1 and 2 and specifically in the first human relationship. Adam and Eve, given one to another to become one flesh, exclusive and committed, one man and one woman. Now, if that's what Paul means then, he's not simply picking on homosexuality. It is an illustration of an inward spiritual rejection of God. And that would be just as true for heterosexual sin as homosexual sin. It's not that being heterosexual means you're good to go and that being homosexual, you're not. Paul here is giving us an illustration of what it means to be at odds with God in the depths of your being. It is a tragic sign of God's wrath. And it's not the only sign. If you look in verse 28 to 31, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And what does he list? All manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, Envy, murder, strife, deceit, gossip, disobedience to parents, foolishness, haughtiness, boastfulness. These are symptoms of God's giving us over. These don't provoke God's wrath. They are symptoms of God's wrath. Signs. Now, here's what's difficult about this. Paul gives no suggestion of this giving over of God's wrath, this giving over coming to an end. And I was trying to think of a a way to illustrate that for you, and I think I've used this illustration before, but if you've ever watched a movie about uh, mountain climbing or mountaineering, one of the first things you, you have to learn in order to successfully do that without dying is how to self-rescue. And there's an ice axe that has this very interesting 
head on it with these specific teeth. And there's a specific technique that when you're, you're mountaineering and you're on, on the face of a, of a mountain that's full of ice and snow and you fall and you start sliding down the face, you're to take your ice axe, roll over, stick it in the, in the um, face of the mountain and it will arrest your fall. Paul is telling us, you don't have that. There's no ice axe for you. The human race has no means of self-rescue. God's determination to give humanity over to what we most want, there is no rescue. There is no way for us to arrest that fall. And so then what is the answer then to this human unrighteousness that Paul is diagnosing? Remember what we looked at last week. It's the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. And this is the divine exchange. So all of that was the human exchange. Now I want to look at the divine exchange. The divine exchange. What's so different about this exchange? Well, I want you to remember, there's a contrast. Verse 17, the righteousness of God has been revealed in the gospel. Verse 18, the unrighteousness of men is exposed and diagnosed. How then is God's, is God's righteousness the answer to this human unrighteousness? And here's the answer to that. God's love is brought to bear on our rejection of him. Listen to what Paul writes later on in Romans 5. He says, God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, imagine falling down, sliding down the face of this mountain. You cannot save yourself. God brings to bear on your inevitable slide to destruction and despair and hurt and pain, his love in Jesus. And it is a great exchange. Listen, in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter describes it as the righteous for the unrighteous. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, he writes, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a divine exchange. So instead of you sliding down the face of that mountain to your death, the gospel is Jesus sliding for you. Or to put it in the words of John Stott when he says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. This is the divine exchange. This is the answer to our human unrighteousness. The wrath of God that is revealed in verse 18, the gospel says Jesus took that wrath. The gospel says that what you and I deserve is poured out on him. 
that Jesus alone can arrest your fall. He alone can keep your life from spinning out of control. Perhaps you feel like that this morning, that you are sliding. And you, maybe you're here and you're a believer and you feel that way. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not. You don't profess faith in Jesus and you feel that way. The answer to both kinds of people is the same. It is this divine exchange. Jesus taking your place and giving you his place. This is the self-sacrificial love of God. And how do you get it? Remember from last week, we don't get it by trying to convince God to like us. We get it by, by faith. By transferring all of our trust in ourselves or anything else and putting it in Jesus alone. Now, let me give you just two quick takeaways before we, um, we wrap up. Um, this is a profoundly humble, humbling and arresting passage. At least it is for me. Perhaps you feel that way too. And it's, it's a trenchant diagnosis of the human condition and of God's response to it. So one of the takeaways, if, if, you're, if you're at all hanging in there and, and this is landing with you, is to ask the question, how, how is this intended to humble me? How is this intended to help me to see my absolute helplessness apart from Jesus? But that's a helplessness that's born out of my willful rejection of God. How is it intended to humble me? Second, though, what would it look like for Christian people to take this text seriously? How does this divine exchange, the cross of Jesus, how should that shape us? How should that challenge us in the ways in which we live? Well, I think it should challenge and shape us in that our lives need to increasingly show a sacrificial love. If Jesus has sacrificed himself for you, how does that love compel you to live in new and different ways? And I, given our, our cultural moment and the context, I'm going to apply this specifically to how should we, as Christian people, relate to people who either struggle with same-sex attraction or have embraced a same-sex lifestyle and think it's fine? Let me give you three quick things. One, Christians are called to love their neighbors. Does not matter what your political views are. Doesn't matter what your race is. Doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter about your sexual practices. Christians are called to love their neighbors. But secondly, the Bible teaches that every single human being is created in God's image. That is a given. And therefore, they are worthy and and deserve respect and dignity. And third, how can you deal with that knowing internal sense of self-righteousness and superiority over people who do and live differently than you? The only thing that can make Christian people humble and kind towards people that are different than them 
whether they be greedy or whether they be gay, is the gospel of sheer grace that says you are not saved by living a good life, but you are saved by the life of one who did live a good life for you. Now, where does that bring us as we, as we close today? You gotta accept the bad news. You gotta let this have its way with you. And the reason you do is because it comes in the context of God's good news. Paul begins this whole letter with his good news for the world. But part of understanding that and living it and enjoying it and delighting in it is accepting the bad news. So let's ask God to help us to do that. Father in heaven, we pray that as, as we take in this passage and, and, and wrestle with what it's saying and the themes and topics that emerge from it, um, we ask that you would help us by the power of your spirit uh, to, to accept the bad news about what we are like, about what humanity is like, left to ourselves. And at the very same time, we pray that that would uh, humble us and lead us to, to cry out to you, uh, to, to rest in the good news that your righteousness has come in Jesus, that you have an answer for our suppression of the truth, that you have an answer for our rebellion, and that in Jesus, you're giving up your wrath is not the last word, but that there is an end to that. And it's good news. Painful though it may be for us, we pray, Father, that you would help us to rest in your love brought to bear on us in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.